y'all. Welcome to the Marty's Miss America podcast. This is volume 31, and what an amazing guy I have on the show today. At ESPN, we have so many amazing personalities and so many talented people and so many well-studied journalists from Syracuse and Missouri and North Carolina and all of these esteemed journalism schools, Radford University. Today's guy... I've always felt like I had a really unorthodox path to ESPN. I know I did because I studied print journalism and wound up being blessed enough to be on Sports Center and College Game Day. But this next guy that I'm going to chat with today, Jason Fitz, if you guys think my path is weird, his is really weird. This guy is one of the premier violinists in the entire world. He toured with the band Perry in Nashville for years. He's played with Tim McGraw. He's played with so many tremendous artists. And his his story is just mind-blowing. And now he has a national radio show with Sarah Spain on ESPN Radio. He now has a wildly successful college football show on Twitter every single college football Saturday from 7 to 8 p.m., to which I contribute every week doing some zany mess at some college somewhere. And I just I appreciate his passion, and you guys will too. You'll be blown away by Jason's conviction, by how he bet on himself, and his path to ESPN. I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we get to Jason's amazing story, it's time to talk bacon. Everybody loves bacon. And guess what, bacon lovers? Now, with every pack of Smithfield bacon you purchase, you can enter for a chance to win bacon for life. You heard me right, bacon for life. All the slow-smoked, crispy happiness you could ever imagine. Wake up, boom, there's a bacon-filled breakfast. You need lunch during the big game? Bacon. What's for dinner? Bacon. All day, every day, baby. Right now. You can baconify anything you like. Bacon on s'mores, pancakes. Maybe you like a BLT with a mountain of Smithfield bacon. No gimmicks, no tricks, just a whole lot of Smithfield bacon. For life and for the win. And the chance to win is yours right now. Look for specially marked packages of Smithfield bacon in stores or visit smithfield.com slash bacon for life. Flavor hails from Smithfield. No purchase necessary. This offer ends 12-31-18. Go to smithfield.com slash bacon for life to enter and for free entry instructions. Now for an old boy who likes bacon, here's my interview with ESPN radio personality Jason Fitz. Okay, there are a lot of people at ESPN who have very unique and odd paths to the mothership, myself being one of them, but the gentleman that's on the Marty Smith's America podcast this week is the Forrest Gump of ESPN. (laughs) I don't know how in the hell you got here, brother, other than an amazing personality and great passion, Uh, but I I love what I know about your path, so... We're going to start at the jaw-dropping fact that you studied classical violin at Juilliard. Yeah, that is that is a that is a true um, statement. Yeah, it's a, I, I, I need you to take me all the way back. How did you begin playing the fiddle? Although at that point it was probably a violin. Yeah, when I was a kid, you know, it was funny because if you called it a fiddle when I was a little kid, oh, I'd have slight. busted you. I'd have said, no, no, I am a violinist, good yep. sir. Uh, no, and it is funny because people ask me all the time, how do I get to ESPN? I'm like, oh, I don't know, just practice violin for eight hours a day. Um, <laughs> uh, so for me, when I was four years old, my mom decided she wanted to take piano lessons. 
and we I lived in Las Vegas at the time as a really little kid, and uh, we were we lived next door to a guy that was a musician uh, in Vegas, and so he came in and started giving her piano lessons, and she was terrible at it. But I would crawl up on the bench and I would play by ear what he was trying to teach her just from sitting next to the bench. So my parents said, "Okay, he's got a propensity for piano," and they took me over to UNLV and said, "Hey, are there any piano teachers available that could teach little kids?" and they didn't have any. So they said, let's put him in violin. And so I started playing the violin when I was four. And, you know, I started with what's called Suzuki method. And you're supposed to go through like a book in six months. It's the, sort of the way it works. And I'm not kidding, man. I was like a year and a half in book one. And my teacher was like, oh my God, let's get you to do anything other than this. Cause you're terrible at the violin. But I was, <laughs> I was pig headed. And one day it just clicked. And once it clicked, I went through, it took a year and a half to get through book one. And then I was coming in and no kidding. I, I've gone through a whole book in a week and I'd be like, all right, books two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. And, uh, so my parents were, uh, at that point, uh, they, they found me a teacher in uh, Las Vegas that had just happened to retire from the Royal Conservatory of Music in London. And I started doing like hardcore classical violin. And, uh, by the time I was eight, I practiced eight hours a day, every day, except for Sundays. So my parents, not religious at all, but my dad loves the Raiders, always have. And he's like, I don't want to listen to that junk when I go to watch the Raiders game. So <laughs> Sundays was the day off, and my dad would go get a dozen donuts, and we would uh, sit together and eat a dozen uh, Dunkin' Donuts while uh, while we watched the Raiders play. So sports and music have been sort of in my blood since I was that that young. Sixty four hours a week, yeah, in order well, to become elite. Well, and and then on top, of, I always tell this this my, my parents were always very uh, they preached independence. Uh, so. I remember when I was in sixth grade, my mom walked me down to the, the basement of the house we lived in. We'd moved to the East Coast at that point because I got into Juilliard and played Carnegie Hall. And my mom was like, you know, uh, here's the here's the washer. Here's the dryer. Here's how you do laundry. Stop bugging me with that. Here's how you make a snack. And so when I uh, by the time I hit on seventh, eighth grade, I wanted a Nintendo. My mom's like, you want a Nintendo? Get a dang job. So uh, I got myself a paper route. So there was a period of my life where I would get up at three in the morning and I practice until I heard the papers hit the th- front door. I'd deliver my papers, come back, practice until it was time to go to school. So I went to public school and then uh, I go to school all day, come home, watch uh, the Transformers for 30 minutes. And then I would practice until it was time for bed. So that was sort of my whole life was just, you know, the I've worked full time since I was basically eight years old. What's Juilliard like? Competitive, focused, driven. Uh, it's a place where nothing matters more than your own perfection and I, I tell this story sometimes to put it into perspective. I did a, a competition uh, when I was a kid, and I won the competition, but I got a silver medal for winning it. And they came back, the judges came back and said uh, it, that my I may have won that day, but it was not a gold medal-worthy performance. And that's how I've always sort of, like that was, as a kid, it was never just about winning. It was about being your absolute best, outworking everybody that's around you and working with such a focused consistency that no matter what the situation is, you can do your job and you can do it with great grace under pressure, hopefully, and you can do it at the highest level possible. And that's just the expectation. So you win the competition, but they didn't deem your effort good enough to achieve a gold medal. Right. So you gave me a silver. So, so they give you a silver. Mm-hmm. Sort of the opposite of participation awards, right? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I'm not a, particip- a participation medal guy. I'm also not someone who speaks for a living, apparently. But <laughs> um, that's a little bit harsh. How old were you when that happened? Uh, probably 12, 13, somewhere. 12, like okay. Yeah, there's no pats on the butt. Good job in that joint, huh? Well, and, and you know, the movie Whiplash is not that far off. I mean, I've, I've never actually been able to sit through all of Whiplash, frankly, because it's very close to what I grew up in. I had one teacher that was Russian, and um, because you, you have multiple lessons a week in that system, and I had one teacher that was 
Russian, and he would just start yelling at you in Russian, and he'd pick whatever was up on his desk and just chuck it at you, full bore. And, uh, you know, so I'm dodging snow globes when I was a kid. My teacher in Vegas, when I was really little, it's my favorite, uh, had a prosthetic leg. And so if you played poorly, he would take the leg off and threaten to hit you with it, which is hysterical when I'm 41. But when you're like eight years old, terrifying. Oh, oh man, I would come home from lessons crying and my mom and dad would always look at it and say, hey, you don't want to cry after your lesson. Play better. What's the challenge of getting into Juilliard? What do you got to do? I was I was very, very lucky in that process. Um, I I played Carnegie Hall. Uh, There was a a college aged orchestra in Las Vegas uh, that back in the, you know, in in the late 80s would tour around and they did like international competitions, basically. And they won gold medals at all of these. Like it was a great college orchestra. People at that time didn't really realize that as much as Las Vegas had this reputation as being seedy Las Vegas, a lot of the casino money really made the arts incredible. So I grew up in a very arts fueled uh, area of Las Vegas when I was a little kid. And so I, when I was eight or nine, I'd won the concert master chair, the first chair in that orchestra, that college orchestra. And, uh, and then, you know, we did solo performances with the orchestra and things like that. So that's how I got to Carnegie Hall. And there just happened to be a, uh, there happened to be a talent scout from Juilliard that offered me the chance to audition. So I went in in front of a panel and just played. And, uh, you know, I think much like a rookie in the NFL and they say they don't understand the magnitude of it. I just, I think I was too little to understand really what I was getting myself into or, or frankly, how big the moment was. It was just all right. I'm going to go play. I've always said my entire life, if you tell me I have to play for my supper, I'm going to eat and I'm going to be just fine. I have to believe that, you know, and, and, uh, that was, so for me, it was always just, you know, the, the what I was expected to do. You obviously worked for it, but how close were you slash are you to a savant? Man, that's a really good question. And, uh, I've never been asked that before. Uh, I think there's a, a combination of, of gift and hard work and, I, you know, practicing eight hours a day was always termed as one of the lazy ones, frankly, at Juilliard, because there were kids that practiced 10, 11, 12 hours a day that didn't go to public school. Um, I think parts of it always came easy to me. And so probably there's a piece of that that, that you know, is just a, a natural gift that I was very lucky to have. Uh, and I always played well by ear, which is not something, especially in that era, that a lot of classical musicians did. So I had the benefit of being able to listen to a recording and then play it, which later in life turned out to be key for me. Because when you play in country music, people don't realize it's not like somebody hands you a sheet, a book of sheet music and says, here's the gig. You get handed a CD, you know, or they send you a Dropbox now today and it has 20 songs on it. And they're like, hey, the bus leaves tomorrow. So you got, you know, a day to, to chart and, and learn 20 songs, however you want to do that. So um, I think the, the ear portion of it was always a gift and the rest of it was just hard work. How do people treat you when you're that good, that young? Um, How do outsiders look at it when they see this little guy over there just thrashing the hell out of this fiddle? I, I I'm going to call it a fiddle, bro. Yeah, Sorry. You should. You should. At this point, so do I. Uh, you know, I think it, it doesn't, it didn't really soak in. Like it was a different era. And when you think about when I was good uh, and, and young, it was early nineties, right? And the world was so different before we had these America's got talent sort of. Uh, revolutions mm-hmm. where kids with talent, I think, were given a lot of respect. I, I, I was, pro- it was, it was the opposite. Like, it, kids were not particularly kind. Uh, people were not particularly kind because it was weird that I, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid, so I'm in different cities and different places, and and I'm this little violinist, and I don't really have time to be social. Like, I'm not going to go ride a bike with you as the time for that. So, um, you know, so it was a, a little bit. Uh, I think I grew up a little antisocial. But because I grew, I, I did move around a lot, I, I sort of learned how to read a room and try and fit in, which also later in life, going on tour buses was really a huge 
a huge piece of my success. But but there wasn't some it wasn't really an accolade that was understood when I was a kid. It was more uh, sort of the black sheep uh, moment for me. But I I never really I didn't I didn't care if that makes sense. Like I was a fat kid that played the violin, and I just didn't care what anybody thought about it. So I imagine the dream was some sort of symphony orchestra or whatnot. Oh, good sir, and, no. The dream was to be the soloist. Uh, oh, no, okay. the, yeah, the dream was to be like the next, uh, like it's our Perlman, like solo violinist that tours the world with an orchestra behind them and goes from city to city and plays these great concertos as a soloist. That was definitely the dream uh, as a kid. And then I woke up one day uh, as I got close to the end of high school and realized that I just don't like classical music. I've been playing it my right. whole life, and it's like, you know, I'm good at it, but I don't really, I don't really like it. And uh, the funny thing is, it, at that point, I was singing with some guys. Uh, we were doing a barbershop quartet for fun in school, and uh, we had uh, we'd started doing some little shows here and there. And so after we all went off to college for a year, we came back and we did uh, like a charity event together where we were singing. And um, a guy came back. Uh, backstage afterwards and he was like hey i think you guys are really good and i can get you a record deal doing like a white boys to men thing and i was like yes we want that because we were all big it's like again this is 95 so like that was yeah, right they were the, they were heat man yeah. and and we i was living outside of dc like that was right in the wheelhouse of what everybody wanted so i was like heck yeah we all dropped out of college and we were all like man we're gonna be big recording superstars and then we lost our record deal like right after that and uh, truth of the matter is when we lost our deal and we lost our deal because our producer was producing other acts that hadn't done well. So they just fired everybody, uh, which is the way the pop industry worked at the time. And we all sat down and we're like, man, we're listening to Tim McGraw and Garth Brooks right now. Like, why aren't we singing that? Like, that's what we love to listen to. So we hopped into cars with no idea of anybody, didn't know a single soul. And we moved to Nashville and that was 96, 97. Uh, the, me and my three buddies moved to Nashville and we decided we were going to be famous. What did you learn about the music industry when you got fired for someone else's ineptitude? You know what? I don't think I was smart enough to take the lesson from it that I should have taken right then, which is that in the music industry, you never truly control your own destiny. I think I always thought it would be different if like that's what happens when when, you know, and for me, when I was touring and. I was in bands and we just kept never making it, but we kept getting signed. And I thought, man, once we get, once we get a single out, it's going to be different. And then, you know, you start playing for acts as I did that, that had singles out. And it's like, oh, but if these singles were hits, it'd be different. And then I toured with, you know, frankly, when, when I was with the band Perry, we had had the, the fourth biggest song of all time in country music at that point. And then you look at it and you're like, man, it's still not different. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody else has so much control of everything that, the, I think the most helpless part of the the music business is that creativity and art really have to take a second a, a backseat to business, and you don't always get the final say in how they're prioritized or when. How many artists that you know have had the creative freedom to produce and cut and write their passions? Oh, I, I mean, I, you could count on one hand. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and that's the funny thing is like, I always remember a story and, and I, I don't know if this is true, but you know how the legends are in Nashville. But I always remember a story when I was uh, first in town, they were talking about how uh, George Strait was doing a, a photo shoot at the time for something. And they told him what kind of hat to wear. And what was not, uh, I just, I didn't pick up on that at the time was like, man, this is George Strait. And they're still telling him what hat to wear, you know, and that was a, I've, I've seen a couple of firsthand moments. I will tell you when I played the ACM awards, uh, a few years ago, this has been quite a few years ago, uh, with Tim McGraw, he did a song called, if you're reading this, and, uh, it was a beautiful song. Um, if you're reading this, I'm already gone. Yep. That is yep. the, well, and so that, that radio performance 
actually came from the live performance of the ACM. Yeah. So I'm the first by I'm I'm the violinist on that report on that performance. Beautiful. When you hear That's it, thank beautiful you. performance, man. Um, that song is stunning. But that is one of the rare moments. Like McGraw refused to play it for anybody in advance. When he wanted to rehearse it at the ACMs, he required that they empty the entire arena. He wouldn't let anybody tell him how long the song could be, which for award shows is very rare. And when they came up and tried to change it at the last minute, he was like, fine, I just won't perform. And it's one of the rare moments where I've seen an artist be able to come in and say, I am so sure of this. I don't care what you say. And he was absolutely right. To Tim's credit, he was absolutely right about it. The song was gorgeous. The moment has gone down as one of the better ACM moments in, in recent years. And, and it's one of the rare examples I can think of of an artist sticking to their guns and getting what they really care about. What's a great Tim McGraw story? Oh, man. No, so, you know, I, I, I can only speak for what I've heard on this, right? But, you know, we, we toured with McGraw a little bit. When I first started with Ben Perry, we were out with Luke Bryan and Tim McGraw on that tour. Uh, and Tim is a great guy, by the way. Um, he there, there was a story that always went around about him hurting his knee. And the way he tells it, he at the time was a part owner of the Nashville Cats, the arena football team. And as a as a part owner, he was down in practice. And the way he tells it, he was like roughing it up with the guys. And they decided they were going to do like a practice scrimmage, but they were going to go all out on it. And so he cut to catch the touchdown and he, he blew out his knee. That's the way I always heard the story. So fast forward a few years later when Jay Gruden is hanging out with me. Um, Jay Gruden's a big country music fan. And so he had come out to one of our shows. We're hanging out and talking about it. And at the time, Jay worked for the Nashville Cats. And so he was telling the story of how McGraw was standing on the middle of the field talking to somebody. And Jay was like, hey, Tim. And he turned around. And when he turned around, his foot got stuck in the ground. And he blew out his knee. So, like, there wasn't even a football <laughs> involved. So, uh, you know, I, I always like to tell that with Tim. But you want to talk about a fitness freak and somebody that really has oh, taken – Oh, I know. It's not right, man. No, yeah. No, I mean, he looks like a million bucks. Uh, the thing that, that will always stand about, out about McGraw, and I think you'll you'll agree with this if you go back and listen to it, he doesn't always write his own stuff, you know, and he doesn't – he's never going to be an American Idol, like the best singer in the world, right? Like, that's not his thing. There's a skill in Nashville to being able to hear a song and say that is a hit. That's a hit. And yeah, that's, it, it's such an undervalued skill from, there are guys that can write and guys that can sing, but even guys that can write and sing, if you can't hear a hit, you're, you're not going to make it. McGraw hears hits like nobody else. It's, it's really stunning. There's this song that he cut once called the book of John. Mm -hmm. And I don't recall what record it was on, but it is the most unbelievably, it's a greatest story. I mean, that's the beauty of songwriting to me is the phenomenal ability to tell a full, emotional, impactful story of depth in two and a half minutes. Yeah. And man, that one's so good. There's this, there's this line where it says, um, I forget the exactly what the lyric is, but it's basically they're looking through their daddy's book. I think they may either find his Bible or his this, this book that he had with stuff in it, and there was like a bag luggage ticket from Hanoi, Vietnam, you know, and a Braves ticket from the '60s, and it was just this amazing song. And one of my favorite songs that he actually made it the title track on one of his records, "Damn Country Music." Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard the? original version of that song no from the writers no i haven't oh my god that's the thing about nashville that that i trip out on man these songwriters are all so talented vocally too a hundred percent but but they're all making so much money <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, not all of them. I shouldn't say all. Well, of them. no, but a lot of them are. I mean, people forget Sugarland was originally a trio, not a duo. And one yep. of the members of Sugarland was like, "Wait, I'm making the money I'm making is for the songs. I can right. stay home and not tour." I mean, and and Jeffrey Steele is a great example of like I don't know if you've ever heard um, Gold Platinum and Steel is a record he put out years ago, and it's a bunch of his golden platinum songs sung by him. And when you hear him sing When the Lights Go Down, which is a Faith Hill song, but you hear him sing it, you're like, oh, that just that just took my soul, tore it out of my my heart, and just stomped all over it. It was so stinking good. Like It, it, it so really is talented. different yeah. when the person that wrote it, when it's coming from that soul, and you hear them sing it, there's another level there. And these vocalists, like me, Faith Hill's a goddess, right? right? But when you hear the person that was so moved to create that excellence, disseminate that excellence, it's a wonderful thing. And you can't and fake that personal connection, right? No, like, you can't. Is an artist, and I think that's where a lot of artists go wrong, frankly. Artists sometimes get into a, stand, uh, a, a process where they're chasing hits in country music. And you just got to sing what's real. Like Chris Stapleton is a great example of somebody that doesn't give a damn if radio is going to play it or not. He's going to sing what's real and you feel it when he sings it. Right. You know, that's 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 the key, especially when you think about right now where country music is. And there's this sort of counterculture movement of guys like Stapleton and like Casey Musgraves and even Mayor Morris, who's having a ton of commercial success. But there's still artists that are so stinking real to who they are. It, it works. And that's what you have to do, especially if you're going to sing somebody else's stuff. But you have to be patient because Chris, Chris couldn't cut his own songs for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Everybody else did. And, you know, when people, when, when people that are monster Stapleton fans now realize all the stuff that he wrote, you know, years ago before he really made it as an artist and was just writing, they go, holy, shit, he wrote that. I know you had Phil uh, Vassar on, uh, on with you and, yep. you know, my first road gig, the first, First, first guy that ever paid me to play for him, uh, was Phil Vassar. And to this day, not only the kindest, but most talented person I've ever toured with, Phil Vassar. Really? Hands down. Um, and I, you know, it's funny, a uh, uh, couple of quick things and I'll get, I'll relate it to, to what you were just talking about. But one, remember the first show and I, I've, every time up to then I'd been in bands where you had to like load your stuff and set your stuff up and all this stuff. When I joined Phil, he had just had a number one and, you know, the bus pulled in and I woke up and the, the marker board on the bus said, you know, load in at nine. And it was like nine 30. And I'm like, Oh my God, first day, I'm never going to get this gig. I'm late. I come running off the bus and his stage manager is like, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm late loading my stuff. And he's like, no, 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 man. Like other people, do, like you're on a big tour now. Somebody <laughs> loads you. And, and it's not like they, they do it, you know, but it's like uh, you're, I'm used to setting up my own speakers at that point. So, uh, it was crazy. Uh, and Phil, I think it was our second or third show. We were playing a corporate event and, he came, there's a little microphone on stage with him back in the back. And if he talks to it, he's talking to the band. Nobody else can hear him. And he did his first couple of songs that were big hits for him. And the crowd didn't care at the corporate event. And he came back to the mic and he said, hold on, boys. They don't care about my music. So we're going to do what they want. And he spent the next 90 minutes off the top of his head playing 70s covers, 80s covers, being wow. a cover band. And by the end of it, that corporate, like that corporate event was enamored with him and i'm sitting here playing like four different instruments trying to hang on for dear life figuring out what to play uh, but I, I tell the phil story because i don't know if he told you this when you talk to him his first demo had five or six songs on it and he pitched it to every label in town and every label said your songs stink you need to stop playing the piano and put on a cowboy hat and then he eventually went out bought his own bar got himself the, the gig and everybody all of his friends started coming to the bar, started cutting his songs. All six of the songs that were on that original demo he pitched 
went to number one for other artists. And you sit there and say, how? How did a record label versus miss on Chris Stapleton for years? How did they miss on, you know, again, Casey Musgraves in the same boat, a writer that was prominent in town and then, then blows up? How did they miss all those number ones for Phil? And he almost, even after he did his record, his first record, Just Another Day in Paradise was going to be the single off that record. And Lone Star had also cut it. And Lone Star was going to release it as a single. And until they found out, his record label wasn't even going to release the record that he'd put out. But they were like, oh, my God, well, Lone Star's going to do it. We should do this now. And then he ended up having like a bunch of number ones of his own. So it's just you're right. you got to be patient and you got to be ready to strike at the right time. And you really got to have conviction for what you do. Well, he certainly does. And I just uh, it was wonderful to get to chat with him. I learned so much about him. I didn't know. And he's just a beast. He really is. And yeah. you're right. I, I, I'm, he has, the, you know, you and I are TV guys too. Mm-hmm. And he might have the coolest television concept. He invites people over to his famous people, all right, really famous people over to his house. They go down into his wine cellar. They drink wine and they chat about life and they put it on TV. Uh, which I'm all in for, you know. I think you and I, though, we could take it a step farther. Like, have you ever seen Drunk History, the TV show? Where they, yeah, man, of course. Be, yeah, all right. So I say we take, like, a wine cellar, we drink too much, and then we commentate on a game as it's going down. That's and just been my idea if, for years. I mean, I'm in for it. Like, you, you, need a, you need a co-host, a setup guy? I can't read when I'm sober, so let's just try it drunk. We'll see how things It would go. be huge. I'm <laughs> telling you, if you had a couple good old boys sitting there on a the couch with a 12-pack, watching ball, and complete no inhibitions. Yep. Just calling it like you see it. Oh my god. It would be monstrous. College football uh the the, the people at ESPN need to put us together for this Marty. I am your guy. I mean, as long as you <laughs> as long as you're okay with me drinking like a girly drink while we're doing it cuz it's probably going to be right, like crown vanilla or cherry vodka and diet or something, you know. I don't I don't disparage anyone's alcoholic beverage of choice. As <laughs> long as it gets you. you where you're going, I'm all good with it, brother. Oh. So what do you what do you think was your break in in sports or in music? That's such I, a I weird didn't, question. I didn't clarify for a reason. What okay. do you think was your break? Um, I, I think there was a uh, man. That is such a a my break at ESPN is uh, you know an incredible risk that I took when ESPN uh, offered me one show. Uh, the College Football Daily was the name of the TV show. I got a call in the summer. And they said, hey, can you be in Charlotte tomorrow to meet with some people? And I flew to Charlotte, and I hadn't heard from ESPN in months, and I thought that they just didn't like me. But I flew to Charlotte, and I ended up uh, arguing with a bunch of people about whether or not college athletes should be paid. And, and, you know, it was a fine conversation. They called the next day, and they offered me – uh, they offered me college football daily and they said, Hey, we've got a new show that's going to launch on Mondays. Uh, that's Mike Golick Jr. and Elika Sadegi. And we want a, a host for that show. That's not a normal host. So they offered me one show and they could fire me after one. If I stunk, we never did a screen test. We never did any of that. It was, it was just going to be trial by fire, one show and as many as 12 shows. If it went okay, that was the, uh, the deal they offered. And I went to the band at the time and I said, Hey, I need every Monday off uh, in order to do this. ESPN will find This was the Band Perry, yeah, right? We were out the Band Perry. Band Perry was about to put out a new single, and and I was like, I just need every every Monday off for twelve weeks. And if there's a show, there wasn't at the time. I was like, but if there's a show, then I'll uh, I'll find a sub for it. And it just wasn't something they were comfortable doing because they they needed the ability to add shows. So. Uh, it, it essentially came back to a, they, they, they weren't okay with it. And I went to uh, my wife, Sonny. I said, what do we do? 
my wife said, when ESPN offers you a show, you take it. So I quit the band with no idea. I mean, and you know how that works. Like people, people hear one TV show and they think, oh, well, you're going to make a ton of money. No, it was one episode on ESPNU. So we're not talking about enough to keep my lights on if I got fired after one. But again, like I said earlier, it's like one of those, if, if I got to bet on myself, man, I'm, I, I have to do it. And I did that. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, I don't know if it's fate or if it's God or what, but I uh, quit the band and took the ESPN show. And then literally two days later, I got a call from Nashville, from an ESPN affiliate in Nashville that said, we heard you just quit the band and uh, that you're going to be doing something with ESPN and we need a co-host on our morning show. Would you be willing to come in today and do an hour of mock radio with the co-host? I went in and did it and they offered me the job. So Within you know forty eight hours of quitting the band, I had a TV show and a local radio show, and then it, and then it was like, all right, all the all the cards lined up. Now I just have to outwork everybody and try and get to the next level, and that's you know that's what I've been doing. And uh, that was, uh, I guess, two years ago. This fall was the the first ever ESPN moment for me. Um, so it's it's been a, a whirlwind ride. That was my that was definitely my my biggest break in life. Why was it the right decision? Because I never want to live what if. And sometimes, like, I, I think that what happens is when people want a dream job, you, you've got to be willing to take risk. You've got to be able to leverage yourself and be willing to leverage yourself to go for it if you want a dream job. And I think for a lot of people, they get so stuck in the what ifs that it, it can just suffocate you. And I, I knew it was the right decision because I had to take the chance so that I could always look at it and say, man, I, I, I did it. You know, and I, I don't look at accomplishment as money or fame. I look at I look at accomplishment as impact. And all I ever wanted to do was play on records that touched other people the way that records touched me. And all I ever wanted to do when I toured was have the same impact for some little kid at their first concert that Richie Sambora and Bon Jovi had for me at my first concert when I was 11 years old. That like that's all I ever wanted. And there's a whole section of my life that was always defined by sports and the opportunity to try and and have that same impact to somebody that, that, you know, Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen and guys like that had for me, man, that, you have to take that. And who cares if it fails? At least you can look at it later and say, hell yes, I did that. Nobody can take that moment away from you. So all I wanted was one shot to sit in front of a camera and do my thing. And, you know, and that, that changed my life. Yeah, I have the same story. Uh, different details, but I have the same story. I mean, I was a writer. I studied print journalism. I never aspired to make television. And I was driving down the highway one day in 2006, and I got a telephone call from an 860 area code. And I don't answer calls I don't know. I'm shady about it. <laughs> but I felt led to answer this one, and so I answered it. And there was a guy on the other end named Jack Obringer, and he told me that ESPN was coming back into the NASCAR business and that they were pursuing potential reporters for their ancillary programming, whether that be sports center or a show we used to have called NASCAR now. And he re every, he said, everybody that they had spoken with said I was the guy. And I laughed at him and said, well, thank you for that. But there's a guy named Marty Snyder. Uh, he works for another network. That's the guy you're, you mean to call. Hmm. And he said, no, it's you. And I want you to think about it. And I came home and I told Laney, I don't know what just happened, but I think ESPN just called and offered me a job mm. to make TV, like to be on Sports Center. And that is beyond comprehension for anyone. And certainly it was for me as someone who had no television experience. And 
I'm the same guy, dude. I would rather crash and burn and fail miserably knowing I can't than wonder when I'm 75 on the back porch with my Milwaukee's best wondering if I could have. God, amen to that. So I have the same exact philosophy and that's amazing, dude. I mean, it's, um, we're all grains of sand. If you make it to ESPN, it's just so, it, it's just such a rarity and, I, people ask me all the time, you know, how do I get there? What do I do? How do, how do I do what you're doing? It's an impossible question to answer because you can hear how, what an anomaly you are and what an anomaly I am. And we just happen to be blessed and get the opportunity. And when somebody cracked the door, we kicked the damn thing down. Well, and, and, you know, the funny thing is I, I got my, my shot on the TV show a couple of months later, they gave me a tryout on radio and, and obviously now, that's changed my life, but I'll never forget the first TV show I did at ESPNU. I met Golick the morning of. I met Elika maybe an hour and a half before we went to tape, or before we went live, I should say. We were live every day on ESPN, every Monday on ESPNU. I walked into the studio. They put an earpiece in, and the producer handed me a rundown, and he said, here's your rundown. I was like, awesome, James. What's a rundown? Mm-hmm. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I've never done TV. I have no idea what you're handing me. And he was like, oh, my God, we all forgot that. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't. And so he, he said, let me, he's like, I'll, I'm going to get in your ear and I'm going to talk you through this whole thing. And one of the little secrets of the music business, a lot of people don't realize is that during a concert, there's a ton of communication. And, you know, like I always had a mic in front of me that I could sing background vocals. And if I stepped on the mic, uh, nobody else could hear me in the crowd, uh, but the band could hear me and I could talk to the whole band. So if Kimberly Perry skipped a verse, I could, uh, you know, step on the thing and say, hey, KP skipped a verse. We're going to go to this song. Now we're going to do this. Everybody give me a nod to confirm. And we, we did that, you know, 10 times a night during the show. And like they get my ear and say, Hey, we're a little shorter or a little long on this set. We need to cut a song or add a song. Like we all throughout the set. And so I just told myself four minutes before we went live on TV. I was like, this is just like music. I've done this before. They'll walk me through it. And you know, that, that, that moment of just, you know, peace that came from that. Uh, and the best way I can say it is that I feel like everything I ever trained for my entire life, as weird as it sounds as a musician, prepared me for what I get to do now. And that's those are the moments that you look at it and say this was the right decision because all of the things aligned. Now, I will say to you, good sir, uh, and not just to kiss your ass, uh, but you you absolutely are part of what you're one of the pieces here. And you may not realize this, that a lot of us look at and say, man, I got to I got to make sure I got some Marty in my life. And what I mean by that is that you are true to you. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to find. And and I think one of the things that happens when you get to ESPN is that you look around at all the talented people and you're like, God, they're so good at this and they're so good at this and they're great at that. And, you know, every once in a while you got to look around and say, well, you know, L. Duncan is great because she's L. Duncan and Marty Smith is great because he's Marty Smith. And those are the moments that remind you that even in this even in this piece, authenticity is what people ultimately give it. Give, sorry, yep. sorry, Travis. No, Give it's you okay. bad word, Travis. Travis has a beat button. Sorry. <laughs> I can edit that out. Hearing you, hearing you say that you didn't know what they were talking about when they handed you that rundown. Again, I have a, a a parallel story. The first time I went to work for ESPN was the 2006 NASCAR finale in Homestead, Florida, and I walked into this trailer, this production trailer. And the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Jack Obringer, was standing in the trailer. I'd never worn a suit to work, ever. Hmm. And all my buddies in the garage area were looking at me like I was an alien. And I walk in this trailer, and I say hello to Jack. And there's a guy named Mike McQuaid. You may know him. I don't know if you know Mike or not. Mike runs uh, golf for us and tennis and horse racing. 
And when we first started back in the NASCAR business, Mike oversaw that. And he's in an, an adjacent room with his back to me, typing on a laptop. And Jack says, all right, brother, it's so awesome to have you here. Here's what we're going to do tonight. You're going to uh, interview a couple drivers after the race, uh, namely Dale Jr. We'd love for you to get Dale Jr. And then we'll probably have you wrap that sound at the end of the race uh, on SportsCenter. So be thinking about what you might ask him after the race, blah, 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 blah. And he, it was like the peanuts teacher. And when he got done, when he got done talking, I said, all right, man, all that sounds good. What's rap sound mean? And in the adjacent room with his back to me, McQuay just drops his head and lays it on his laptop. That's amazing. What in the hell or who is this bumpkin? Where did we get him? And why doesn't he know what they're talking about? Um, I adore both of those men now. They've been integral in my career and my success, but. That's neither here nor there. No, but it, I just, um, it, it never ends. Like uh, my my first TV thing up in ESPN, like proper after I uh, after the college football thing ended, uh, they they had me come up and host NFL Live for a couple of weeks, and they're like, "All right." So I go to the first meeting, and then they say, "Great, you just write all your scripts." And you know, we have a, a, a whatever it's called uh, the the software here that we write scripts. ENPS. Yeah, thank you, ENPS. They're like, "Just write everything in ENPS," and I was like, "Great." How how does prompter work? And they're looking at me, they're like. What if you never used prompter? What were you doing down there? I'm like, we didn't use it. So I went into my first day of NFL Live, and then the prompter person couldn't hear me very well, so they weren't keeping up with my timing on it. And I'm like, so I'm sitting here just dying on prompter. Like you never uh, that, but that's part of what I love about it. Like every time I turn around, there's some weird challenge to this business. We're like, okay, I have no idea how to do this, but there one there's one thing about me as a personality. You only have to show me once. Show me once, yep. and I'll be fine. And that I think that's the 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 biggest key to all of it. Well, it's just so impressive, man, and I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. What an amazing story, uh, and above all in this life, you talked about authenticity and genuineness. All of that is so important, but so is passion, and it's obvious to me how much passion you have for it. It's one thing that's been my calling card. I'm never going to be the best looking. I'm never going to be the most articulate. There's a million better reporters than me, but ain't no damn body ever going to outpassion me. Amen to that. That's something I can control. And that's the way I've done it. And I can tell that you have a lot of passion too. So I got passion. What an amazing ride, dude. I got passion for you and me calling college football together in your basement drunk. That's what I got passion for now. I have this new Laney and I moved about two months ago and I do have a wine cellar that is ready to go. It has nothing in it yet. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have a drunken college football commentary uh, welcome party where everybody brings me wine. <laughs> that, that is a that is a spectacular way to. You know how many hits you do if we be like I'm the guy that's always on Twitter. Let's get to we'll do a Twitter live broadcast of that. You we'll set records. Done in. <laughs> hey, thank you, brother. I know you've been slamming all day, so thank you for giving me a few minutes, and I appreciate what you do. I appreciate who you are. And beer's on me. Appreciate you. Seriously, it's an honor to be on with you. Thank you, my friend. I told you guys it was interesting. Uh, I'm just a big fan of him. I love people who know who they are. Uh, That's rare in this life, and that dude does. It's also always so cool when somebody bets on themselves like that. I mean, he pushed every single chip to the center of the table, took what was a flourishing career, threw it away because he was passionate in another avenue. 
I don't know if I'd have the guts to do it. I don't. I don't know if I would. Uh, fortunately, I love my job. <laughs> Uh, but thanks so much to Jason for sharing that. It's going to inspire somebody. There's going to be somebody listening to this podcast who hears that and goes, you know what? That's my sign. It's time. I'm going to shift gears and go this other direction. Appreciate Jason's conviction. That was a Marty party in and of itself. So we're going to head straight to the Hillbilly Hotline. What you got, Travis? Words, sayings, or just a way of life? Roman candles? That's a redneck mortar launcher. That's what that is. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. Hey, Marty, love the show. So I have one of those uh, hold my beer moments. So I work for a company that specializes in tailgating for college football games during the season. And uh, we were up in your neck of the woods in Blacksburg, Blacksburg, Virginia, and we had uh, a good old tailgate going, and uh, at the end of the night, we were cleaning cleaning things up, and we saw this kid walking up who had clearly had a couple of cold beers throughout the day, and we were cleaning up some fence that's about six feet wide and four feet tall, and we see him walking up, and he gets the bright idea. He thinks he's going to jump over top of it. So we're, we're watching him, and he gets closer and closer, starts running towards the fence, and <laughs> takes off, and just crashes right into the right into the fence face first into the ground he gets up looks around makes sure nobody was watching sees us over there standing laughing at him and runs off grabbing another beer thanks man love the show hey man you got to do whatever it takes right travis and what the, kind of cans y'all got oh well first of all we need to get that just patented and copyrighted by you but also the though gets up and looks around I know exactly that it, feeling because everybody has fallen, and the first thing you do is, "Who saw me? Who saw me?" I hope nobody saw everybody me. Everybody does it. That's the first thing you do. And I've I've tried when I do something like that, whether I'm like walking up the stairs at the airport. I was at the airport the other day, and I was coming down the escalator and wasn't paying that close attention, and almost went ass over tea kettle when I got to the bottom of the escalator because I wasn't paying attention. And I I took tried to take the cool route. I didn't look around to see if anybody was looking. Took maybe 10 steps and then sort of kind of took a little inventory. See if anybody was hunched over laughing their tails off at me. Uh, that's what everybody does though. And I think that's an eight within you because I took my family to the Lazy Five Ranch, which is this, it's a ranch out here in Charlotte, out in suburban Charlotte in the country. And they got all these exotic animals. They got emus and gazelles and water buffalo and zebras and all that. Big old giraffes and you feed them and you give them these pellets. And they had this uh, playground area, and my kids were playing on the playground area, and this sweet little girl who was probably three years old went tearing ass down the slide, and her feet never really made it to the ground, and she bounced about three times. And the first thing she did was kind of dust herself off and look around and see, see if anybody was watching. Sober, drunk, it doesn't matter the age or whatever your state of mind is, you always look. You think that we should patent? What cans y'all got? What, well, first of all, we need to explain to people what we're talking about here. Elaborate well, on our, our, like text, our, drink, group t- our group chat. I like to drink my beer out of cans. I hate bottles. I'm not a bottle guy. Don't like them. Don't need them. Not a fan. I'm a can guy. And so every single bar I go into or if I'm on the airplane, I say, what cans y'all got? Well, we were in Indianapolis for the Indianapolis 500, and I was in the bar with Travis and McGee. And... McGee orders this chalice, this like, it was, it was a replica of the milk jug that the Indy 500 winner chugs his milk from, his or her. And so McGee has this 64 ounce Miller Lite bottle, uh, milk jug. Travis gets, I don't know, some, I don't know. Tito's, Tito's and soda. 
Tito's and soda. And I said, what can y'all got? And the, these two just start laughing their tails off at me. And I'm like, what? They found it to be so funny. Because you didn't care what kind I of beer. I everywhere. You just, huh? you just wanted canned beer. It didn't matter that, it didn't matter like the, you didn't ask yeah. for like a certain kind. The question was, what no. cans y'all got? And he brought me some IPA that was indie, indie based. I like local beers. I'm a big local beer guy. I always inquire once I say, what cans y'all got? Is there anything local? And when they bring me a local can, I am 99.5% of the time extremely fulfilled by that beer. And so now uh, what you're forgetting is now whenever you're out, you get a beer. You send a photo to Mar- to McGee and I, and it's either hashtag what cans y'all got or what cans. Yep, what cans y'all got. Uh, let's so th- make it a thing. I think y'all we, need, let us like, know. we need a T-shirt or something or koozies. Well, I need the listeners. Here's the thing. I need the listeners. It's time for you guys to start sending me pictures of your beer on the tweeter machine with the hashtag what cans y'all got and my handle at Marty Smith ESPN. All right. Hashtag what cans y'all got at Marty Smith ESPN. I want to see as many as y'all will send me. Awesome show. I appreciate Jason so much for taking the time to chat with me and share his life story. I appreciate Travis for helping me get Jason on. We've been chasing him a while. I appreciate Smithfield so much for their investment in me. Um, I have had a great affiliation with Smithfield and their brand Eckridge for years now with the college football playoff million-dollar throw. And that is one of the – oddly enough, the Eckridge million-dollar throw is one of the most fulfilling moments of my year, every year, because you get to see somebody throw for a million bucks, and then you get to see Kirk Herbstreet throw for a million bucks. And it's so fun. And don't forget, by the way, that uh, Bacon for Life is going on right now. All you guys got to do is go to the grocery store, buy specially marked packages of Smithfield bacon. There's a code inside that package. Take that code. Go to smithfield.com slash bacon for life. Insert that code, and you have a chance to win bacon for the rest of your life. I mean, who Everybody wouldn't want bacon? bacon for the rest of your life? You're going to go buy what? bacon anyways, so go get Smithfield, and you could go win bacon right. for life. Go get Smithfield, and you got a shot to never have to buy bacon anymore. <laughs> That's a pretty good gig right there. Uh, thanks so much to Louise. Uh, for being crazy enough to let us do this. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Uh, without your investment, there's no reason to do it. So thank you for that. Subscribe, rate, and review, please. Hit that subscribe button. We need it. We need as many of y'all to do it as we can get. And thank you so much to our military all around the world for fighting for our freedom. Uh, we're free for a reason, and it's you guys. I appreciate it. I'm getting ready to leave here and head out to the USS Carl Vinson and uh, spend a couple days with our Navy out there. Uh, on that aircraft carrier and i can't wait for that what an amazing opportunity i'll uh, that we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that in the marty party next week thank y'all i appreciate it so much have an amazing week and we'll catch you next time